All right, gentlemen, I'm sure you've heard by now that Hollywood is going to go ahead and take another crack at The Exorcist. The news came out recently that in 2021, we're going to revisit the stairwell and Father Karras and Reagan and all that biz. So in the spirit of remakes, we thought we might decide who we would cast as the titular exorcist in this film. Fellas, what do you got? What do you think? Who's going to fill that role? Of the the priest and um, the, the possessee? Sure, why not? You want to round out the whole cast? Feel free. Are you ready? I have a, an incredible cast listing in mind. Oh, none of us are going before you, John. You are definitely taking the lead on this one. <laughs> All right, I'm voting for nobody. <laughs> they shouldn't cast anybody because they shouldn't remake the fucking Exorcist. You're not wrong. What are they thinking? What on earth are they like? Like, pick Polly Shore. It doesn't matter who they pick. The movie's going to be garbage. Don't take my picks, dude. <laughs> I think you just chose Garrett's answer. That was pretty sure that's what he was going to say. <laughs> you can't remake The Exorcist, and they're foolish for trying. Wow. What if we do it with dogs? Oh, the dog Exorcist. It could be like an Air Buddy spinoff. We'll do a horror with all these golden retrievers. The wolfening. <laughs> I could see them. You know, they, they pull out the Roman ritual. They're like, well, the rules don't say he's got to be human. <laughs> <laughs> Every sports movie with an animal, that is always a scene, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what do you got, Garrett? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot going on here. And while <clears throat> we've had this conversation where I don't think remakes necessarily ruin an original, I don't see why we should we should have to avoid them. But to John's point, wow, really the exorcist? Like, why was this one? <laughs> like, why did we need to like even look at this one? But if I was going to do this, I'd go one of two ways. The first way is basically try to do this, you know, as close to a faithful adaptation of it as possible. Maybe expand on a little bit more what's in the book um, and go with some serious actors. I think Tom Hardy could play a really good Father Karras. Now, as far as who the possessee would be, I don't know. I'm not tapped in enough to kind of really have like, do we go with a young kid again? Do we go with someone older? I don't know. That's up to the filmmakers. I think um, any one of the, um, uh, what's his nuts from um, Stranger Things, the one that goes in the upside down, whatever that dude's name is, that dude could kill it. Um, Any of the kids from It, you know, who knows? Or... We go completely different with it. Chris Kattan. No, I was going to say, or we go completely different with it and we make it a comedy and we get some some heavy hitters in there to basically just like, just make this thing super funny and enjoyable. Yeah. The problem with that is, is, is once you start going funny again, you're going to start invoking all those memories of the scary movies, right? Because they literally did the exorcist with James Wood at the beginning of uh, scary movie too. Yeah. Well, you and the three people that saw scary movie can remember that. The rest of us who were lucky enough to avoid all seventeen of them. Oh, <laughs> we would like to think scary movie wasn't a smash success, but when those movies came out, they were super super popular. I would venture to say most of our listeners have probably seen scary movie if they're in our age group. It was so popular it made one hundred and forty one million dollars on a forty five million dollar budget. Are you serious? Yeah. According to Wikipedia. Yeah. Holy shit. That's crazy. I remember everyone talking about it when, I mean, let's see. What year did it come out, Mark? 2000? 2001. Okay. So yeah, I was a freshman in high school and it it was very popular amongst the freshman boy crowd. Hmm. Interesting. I will say that it probably has not aged well in a lot of uh, uh, areas for sure. And I'd kind of just rather forget it at this point. So I'm with you, Garrett. But I got to say it was definitely a huge thing, (laughs) at least among the college kids too, John. It wasn't just freshmen in high school. 
See, I missed it. I didn't. I mean, I saw like occasional commercials for it, but I was like, no one's watching this movie. But evidently, I was dead wrong. Holy shit. Well, I don't want to just talk about that, but here's kind of. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and join uh, Garrett's casting of uh, Tom Hardy. I think that's a great choice for Father Karras. So, how about for The Exorcist, we throw in Christoph Waltz? Well, isn't. Isn't the the priest the one who does the exorcism? Isn't he the exorcist? Well, there's two of them, right? So there's Father Karras who's going through this issue of not sure if he believes anymore. Oh. And then they call in the big guns, who is the guy who comes from overseas, who's been doing the exorcisms like for 40 years or something. Okay, right on. All right. So I think a Hardy and Waltz team would be a, a great Oscar winning material, you know? Yeah, dig that. Another idea, if they have to remake the exorcist... Maybe Linda Blair is the exorcist this time. And it's kind of like, a, what was that last Terminator movie? <laughs> Salvation or whatever? Dark Fate. Dark Fate, yeah, where Linda Hamilton's just been, a lot of Lindas, just been killing the, all the, the Terminators. Well, after Exorcist 2, Linda Blair has become like a rogue mercenary exorcist. And now she has to get called in and she's the big guns uh, to rebattle Pazuzu. An exorcist for hire. <laughs> okay, sure. It'll probably be better than that Terminator movie. So why not? Let's just do it. John, you, I'm sure you'll let us know exactly what you think of this Exorcist remake when it comes out. Honestly, I don't think it's going to be that bad. I mean, the bar has been stepped up as far as continuation slash reboot slash... Um, you know, revisiting franchises lately. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll give you something dope as hell. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm talking a lot of shit for someone who's going to be there opening night. (laughs) (laughs) The only other things that I was thinking of is like, like kind of Garrett was saying, let's take it in wildly different directions. And I wanted to make like an exorcist mobster movie. So maybe Ray Liotta could be the exorcist. You owe me money, Pazuzu. (laughs) You know, something like that. That would be funny. Okay, so real quick before we wrap it up, John, I'm just curious because the the history of this franchise of going from the 70s to today, that television show that just aired, did you end up watching that? We may have spoken on this already, but um, I'm just trying to remember. Wasn't that a remake to a degree or no? I watched some of it, like say half of the first season. I do want to go back and finish it. It was better than I thought and from what I've heard from people the second season actually even was better than the first but it's I don't think it's a remake in so much as it's like man I only remember it from when it aired but I think it was basically following a new exorcist in the current day but kind of battling the same demon so it it was uh Pazuzu still involved somehow but it really wasn't directly like a sequel to the the movies. Gotcha. Okay. I think we should redo this as an Ocean's Eleven style movie with all the different demons, Aloth, Pazuzu, <laughs> Satan. We just get them all together and they've got to pull off the biggest exorcism heist ever. They're going to steal 20 million souls at once if they can do this just perfectly. Okay, let me let me tweak it just a tad. They're going to break into the Vatican and steal like the Ark of the Covenant or something. Love it. They're going to get the Pope's soul. <laughs> the biggest heist ever. They'll never see it coming. We'll go right behind the, the gates. Even God couldn't see it coming. <laughs> oh, oh, shit. He just wrote the tagline. <laughs> Boom. I know. It's on the box. <laughs> hey. 
Hey, all you creatures from cyberspace. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Grave Talk podcast. My name is Mark. Again, joined with Garrett and John. Fellas, how are we doing today? Hanging in there. Uh, I did a ton of talking this week, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time to listeners if my voice is a little more grating than usual. Lots and lots of talking at work this week. What are you doing your one-man show of John's Exorcist of Hill Valley on on uh, Broadway or something? What have you been doing? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's You <laughs> nailed it. Uh, and in, for whatever reason, when I wrote my one-man play, I decided it had to be at a very, very high pitch. So I've just been screeching for hours a day <laughs> like a bird. A lot of stretching, a lot of Pilates, right? So you can twist your head around in 360 degree angles. Exactly. Well, uh, thank you for letting us know, John. So listeners, we don't need your tweets about why John sounds raspy. He's, uh, he's aware. Garrett, how you doing? I'm not good, guys. I'm not good. I've been, I've been struggling this week. I had to make a really tough decision and I'm having to deal with the consequences of that. I, uh, I had to buy a pair of Crocs. And damn it if they're not comfy as hell. You're one of those people now, huh? Look, I used to wear my shoes all the time, like until I went to bed. Like my shoes were just on. I wake up, wake up, wake up, get out of shower, boom, shoes on. Shoes don't come off till I go to bed. Well, uh, I keep falling asleep on my bed with my shoes on. So I was like, well, what if I switch to something that's like a shoe, but also only worn inside in my, my like carpeted area so I don't get my bed all dirty? Uh, it was an easy decision. It was, I still struggle with it, guys. I'm not even. I'm not even positive that I'm going to stick with it, but man, it's so far it's done the trick. So I've been, I've been dealing with that this week. Okay. Do you, I have so many questions regarding your life choices, but John, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got a couple, but I think to cut right to the heart of the matter, do you wear them backstrap down or backstrap up in sports mode? Oh, you got to wear them backstrap up. I mean, honestly, I need a <laughs> I need a safety net for my my missing shoes. Yeah. So anything that, that like hugs the back of my my heel as well as the front of my foot, I got to have the the thing. But to be fair though, I don't wear them with socks though. I'm also astonished that you wear shoes all day. I am the, I'm on the complete opposite. I wear shoes as little as possible. Everyone I know is that way. Um, I'm, I just, I don't know. I've just always done it, but I keep falling asleep on my bed with my shoes on. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't want to do sheets every two days. So that's fair. Well, welcome to the Crocs world. <laughs> I'm waiting for my, my welcome email and starter kit. <laughs> what would be in the Crocs starter kit? It's just a mirror so you can look at yourself and sigh. <laughs> I'm one of those people that adopted one of the uh, the Asian habits where, you know, you take the shoes off before you come inside. That way you keep dirt and dust to a minimum uh, inside your house, right? So you don't, you're not tracking anything in. So I guess like John, I'm, I'm mostly barefoot or wearing socks around the house. Man, I just can't do that. That's too much. Like what if, what if a monster jumps out from like your closet or what if like a psycho axe killer, you know, runs into your house, man, you were barefoot and you got to run one bare feet. No, <laughs> diehard taught me. That's not a good idea always got something on my tootsies you know what i'm saying all right okay i, I get you you're living that prepared lifestyle for when you, someone's gonna bust into your place i get it gotta be prepared for anything ready to sprint born to run baby born to run <laughs> the uh, chariots of fire i'm gonna cue that song up <laughs> well what do you guys been watching anything you want to report on i was very disappointed to find out that new mutants is only coming out to uh the theaters first and we have to wait a while before we can get that on VOD because I'm still very excited about it. I I don't think it's going to be as quote unquote horror Marvel as they um, claim it's going to be. But I do love the idea of like a really creepy Marvel movie. So 
I'm going to give it a shot uh, whenever that's available. Um, I did get Shudder, though. So Amityville, it's about time is going to... Ha- oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. Amityville 92, it's about time is going to happen very soon. Thank you. You know it's important to use the full title. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, um, I was... I started that film on a lunch break when I was in a public area and I had to quickly turn it off because I forgot, of course, there's going to be some sort of titty scene that comes up in these 90s horror movies. Yeah. It is right in the beginning and then it doesn't come up again, though. They kind of just check the box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. I'm planning on getting to them, though. I'm definitely going to watch them. I cannot wait uh, to hear y'all's opinion. Uh, that did remind me, I watched uh, the Joe Bob thing. What was that? Sorority, Slaughterhouse, Drill Killer 7? Oh, Slumber Party Massacre? There we go. It was two, though. I had never seen that. That was awesome uh, in the most crazy way. Yeah, that movie's great. Yeah, that movie, dude. That uh, that guitar drill just does not seem like an effective weapon to use against people. No, and much like Joe Bob, I have a million questions about what's real and what's not, but maybe that'll be a future episode because what, what a movie that is. <laughs> I still haven't seen part one. Oh, really? Part one's pretty good. It's uh, it's on Amazon Prime, I know. It might be on Shudder too, but I watched it on Amazon Prime and uh, it was way better than I was expecting. Yeah, the first one's really solid. It's been in my queue for about 100 years. Well, I've watched a couple things I wanted to bring up. Uh, there was a new movie that came to Amazon Prime called Vivarium. Have you guys heard of this one? Yep. I vaguely remember the trailer from the before time when we were allowed to go to movies. Something to do with like buying houses or something, yeah, right? Yeah, it stars not Michael Sarah, but the other guy, the other awkward white male in, in Hollywood. What's his name? He's the social media. Social network guy. Jesse Eisenberg. Yes. There you go. Lex Luthor. That's right. So he is, uh, he works at a school with this teacher and uh, they have a relationship. They decide they're going to go get house. So they go to this realty place that they see advertised on a billboard. Um, the guy is ultra creepy. Um, man, that guy is just very good at being off-putting. Uh, but he immediately goes, let me go show you a house. So they go out to this community of, of homes and every single house is identical. The streets are empty and the only way you can tell them apart is by the number on the house itself. Um, they take a look at the house and then all of a sudden the realty guys vanished and they try to leave the area, but they can't like, it's like they're trapped in some sort of weird loop. I don't know. It's, it's very off putting. It's very strange. And it has a a sci-fi, um, element to it. Um, I don't know if it technically qualifies as a horror movie, but it was so off putting that I was just like, okay, I got to mention this and just let you guys know that I would recommend checking it out. If you're into science fiction and just uh, bizarre imagery and and mood settings, this one's really good for that. It's a long Black Mirror episode is what it is. The other thing I wanted to touch on and I was going to see if anybody uh, had checked out is the Lovecraft Country that just came out on HBO. Roommate's watching that. She said it was awesome. Yeah, so far so good. And I didn't know exactly what to expect when I checked out the first episode. I was like, is this going to be one of those shows like... Once upon a time where it's like every, you know, Snow White is hanging out with Ariel, the little mermaid, and they're all in a city or something like that. I still don't know if that's the case, Um, but it is very interesting. It's set in 1950s uh, post-Korean War, and we're centered around a group of African-Americans at the time who are... um, They they work for like uh, a magazine or a pamphlet that goes around the country to find places that is safe for the black community to go eat at or visit 
or travel to. So that's kind of the premise. These people set out across the country to log these places for their travel guide. Throughout the first episode, really a lot of racism that just kind of is hitting on all notes right now in 2020. And there is some crazy Lovecraftian elements that come in at the end of the episode. So I'm on board. I'm intrigued. Uh, I know very little about Lovecraft. So I'm really interested to see what comes about it. But they do mention Herbert West in episode one. So I'm like, okay, is he a real character or is this a a movie where Lovecraft writes books? Because they talk about reading his books. So I don't know if it's like he was writing real stories. Is that what the show's trying to get or or what exactly? But it's got me hooked. So I'm interested. It reminds me a lot of uh, Castle Rock. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it's kind of like that Stephen King verse, right? That's what that one is? Yeah, it's it's like Stephen King verse. There's a lot of references to a lot of his different uh, books and movies and things like that. So, But it's it's like a, it's its own creepy, bizarre, self-contained story that just kind of like uh, lives in the, the Stephen King verse, if you will. And um, honestly, that show is not necessarily my cup of tea, but what I've seen of it multiple times, I'm like, yeah, all right, I get it. I can see why people dig on this. I get the same feel for uh, this Lovecraft Country uh, show that I, th- I think it's just going to be like a Lovecraft version of uh, Castle Rock, which, you know, hey, I mean, I don't see how you can go wrong with that. So I'm hoping it pans out pretty well and I'm hoping it does what it does. Yeah, I hope it's good too. Uh, it is based on a book from Matt Ruff. So you know, it's not like they're writing it as they go. They do have a template they're following to some degree, but it's on HBO too. And those guys usually knock it out of the park. So, so we're guaranteed at least one like naked person and one like pop song that's done in a different way to kind of like overlay a, a montage scene. Yeah, we get it. HBO, you got a template. I'm trying to remember if they nailed that template, Garrett, if they did, it was a lot more subtle than um, some of their stuff, like say true blood. So yeah, you, you know, you won't be having to hide the kid's eyes as much as something like that. And it's, it's definitely like, it's been around for a while. It was around during Sopranos and things like that. But I mean, yeah, once, uh, <laughs> once HBO was like, Oh, people really like these three things every episode, huh? We got you covered. Every show, every episode, you're just like, all right, we get it. (laughs) All right. Well, you guys ready to get into today's movie? Let's do it. Okay. So we're talking about Color Out of Space from 2019, I believe is when it premiered. This one is director Richard Stanley's return to a major film since the debacle of Island of Dr. Moreau, which we've mentioned before. I can't remember what episode, but we did touch on it a little bit. There's a documentary about it that we all recommend. I don't know, John, you got around to seeing that one that we, do you remember us talking about that? I do. Yeah. Uh, no, I have not gotten around to seeing it. It is on the uh, proverbial list. Uh, yeah. I. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to see this guy get another shot at a big movie. I think particularly this time around, he did a fantastic job. I didn't know what to expect out of this movie. Uh, you know, watching the trailer, it's just a very colorful trippy dreamlike thing and i was like okay i I, you know i'm not familiar with richard stanley's previous works before the island of dr moreau so really i had no expectations for him going in but i think he knocked it out of the park yeah well i think hardware was his only other uh big flick before dr moreau so and that was that's something else hardware is holy shit it's like this trippy horror not I want it's horror in, a, in an element but it's like this techno organic horror I mean it's fucking crazy so I mean if you've uh, if you've seen hardware and you watch that documentary about Island of Dr. Moreau and seeing kind of like what he wanted to do with his original vision for it you kind of know what you're going to get with this movie um, but man they 
still blow your fucking mind with this one. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I've also never seen any of this guy's other films, but this one, amazing. Uh, this is my second time watching it, and it is uh, just as good the second time around. So huge, huge props to this film. And as mentioned, this one was written by H.P. Lovecraft. And John, you seem to be the resident H.P. Lovecraft expert solely on the fact that you're more familiar with his written materials. So is this uh, is this a story that this one is based on? Is this like a in a collection of sorts? No, it's its own short story, but it is nothing really at all like the movie. Really the only thing that is shared between the movie and the short story is that a meteor hits and people go crazy and there's like strange colors, but the rest of it is totally different. Well, and the concept that the the meteor that hits actually is like this, either it's from another dimension or from another part of space, but it actually, it does have the like the the alien race or whatever the... Yeah, it has the colors. It, the, the colors slash whatever it is. Um, that part's the same in the book. And it has some of the same um, abilities to like manipulate time and electronics and environments and stuff like that. So a lot of that's similar, but I think what John's saying is a lot of the um, yeah. the visual incidences we see in this one are very different from the original because I've actually read that short story. And yeah, the, half of what you see in this is not what happens in the, the story. Interesting. So it sounds like uh, Stanley went ahead and adapted it and changed some things. Um, would you say he did a, the, the story a, a service or a disservice? John, what do you think? Uh, I think it's so hard i mean i love it uh, like it's they're so different it's hard to compare i think he did a great job uh taking sort of the same ideas and reworking them i don't know that it makes any sense really to like the story takes place like in the 1800s you know so it's like so different um but yeah i think he did fine i mean i love the movie so i don't want to talk shit about his ability to change the story <laughs> i think he did a really good job of adapting it and i think Part of that is because some of the stuff that we get in this, uh, in Stanley's version, are a lot of references and homages and like his own unique take on things that we we know through pop culture. Um, for instance, like some of the the alien effects in this are very uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, and I think I enjoyed some of those scenes more because it like kind of reminded me of those. Um, but from the the original story. Uh, not not near as much crazy shit happens. Um, stuff happens, but it's not near as bizarre and wild and crazy as what we get in this film. And I think they do a good job in both of developing the characters enough, but it, it's it's to John's point, they're so different in their times that I think it's hard to compare them like head to head. That makes sense. And this this story was published 93 years ago this September. So it's crazy to think about how long it's been. Yeah, like 1923 or something like that? or 1927. Wow. Okay, I was close. So do you guys think this was the first meteor crash bringing an alien to planet Earth story? I, ooh. Huh. Like a la The Blob, a la Night of the Creeps, a la every movie in the 50s, you know? Maybe. I, it's hard to say because I'm just not as familiar with like publications back then. I'm sure everyone had their own unique creepy ass story about things falling from the sky probably not since things were falling from the sky way back in the day and i'm sure there was like stories around that now whether they were put into publication i don't know i'm sure they were written down i guess it really gets into like our the stories where it was like the ancient gods do you count them as aliens because that's probably what most people thought meteors were like for the vast majority of human history uh 
I would say if this is not the... I think that's the same. Yeah. If this is not the first, it would be pretty close to being the first, though, like, aliens as we conceptualize aliens in the modern time, I imagine. Yeah, and it does precede the War of the Worlds broadcast by 11 years. So, uh, yeah, I was just curious. I mean, I'm no historian on this stuff, but if anybody listening uh, has any idea if there's any, you know, published work, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, when was the first, like, you know... War, a worldwide accessible story of a meteor crashing, bringing alien life that, you know, somehow screws with the, the humans. I'd be interested to know if there's an earlier version of that. Yeah, that'd be cool. One thing uh, I, I am doing, though, who knows when I'll be done because it's huge, is I picked up the collected works of H.P. Lovecraft. So I'm slowly working my way through that, but it's like 1,200 pages and I am uh, like 40 pages in. So long way to go, but it's been an interesting read. And some of those stories are just like really hard to read too. Like some of them are are great. And then some of them are just like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. His writing style is very florid. And he is definitely the kind of guy who has like a word of the day calendar (laughs) and wants to use the biggest words he possibly could in any context. Yeah. What was it back when, um, back when serials were coming out, like in the, the 40s and 50s like you got paid by the letter so people would use like really big words and come (laughs) up with like really long ass drawn on sentences because you got paid by how much you put on paper so um this of course this was well before that but still it's just one of those like i wonder if that was kind of around the the same mindset though yeah i don't know but it feels that way i could totally see him getting paid by the letter or maybe he was just a pretentious fuck who knows (laughs) okay so here's who we got in the cast we've got nicholas cage as nathan jolie richardson as Teresa. Madeline Author as Lavinia, Elliot Knight as Ward, Tommy Chong as Ezra, Brendan Meyer as Benny, Julian Hillard as Jack, and Josh C. Whaler as Sheriff Pierce. The Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie is 86% with the critics and 82% with the audience. So pretty close. Wow, that's pretty close. And here's what the back of the Blu-ray has to say about color and space. A story of cosmic terror about the Gardeners, a family who moves to a remote farmstead in rural New England to escape the hustle of the 21st century. They are busy adapting to their new life when a meteorite crashes into their front yard. The mysterious aerolite seems to melt into the earth, infecting both the land and the properties of space-time with a strange otherworldly color. To their horror, the Gardner family discovers that this alien force is gradually mutating every life form that it touches including them. That's pretty accurate. I'd say that's pretty spot on. It's uh, pretty understated for a back of the box. I think that's on purpose, though. I mean, really, you do not want to give too much away about this plot line before you get into it. I think the trailer, we did a really good job of that as well, like leaving us with more questions, but enough like intrigue to kind of be like, okay, what the hell are they? What are they interacting with? What are they doing? And then when you see it, man, the first time I saw it, I did not expect half of what I saw. So I thought they did a great job of that. I think the back of the box does that that similar job. Yeah, I agree. That's a good one. Uh, I did expect some unspeakable horrors or, or something to come up out of there, but I guess we're past the unspeakable horror era. Mm, what a shame. I think it'll come back. It'll feel retro. I, I expect to see a Netflix blurb with, about unspeakable horror in the near future. Oh, <laughs> that's a good question though. John, when they remake The Exorcist, are they going to call this the scariest movie of all time and reset the clock? I... Hope they call it the scariest movie since The Last Exorcist. <laughs> the scariest movies of all time since The Last Scariest Movie of All Time. Yeah. 
<laughs> the scariest movie since 1973. Man, I really want them to be self-referential with the material they built this movie upon. That would be fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie, uh, Richard Stanley wants this to be the first in a trilogy of Lovecraft films. Um, it was made for between uh, uh, under $12 million, I think. Uh, got a limited release to the public. I remember uh, trying to find it in the theaters, and I don't think we could find one here in Austin, at least that I can recall. No, I don't. It was tough. It was at the Arbor for a little bit, but um, that's the only place I knew. That's the only place you could find Mandy for a while also. I was like, yeah, this movie is also from the producers of Mandy. Um, and I wonder if it's made its money. Um, it only made about a million bucks in the theater, but again, it was so limited, I didn't expect it to make all that much. I don't know. Do you hear a lot of people talking about this one? Yeah, I feel like it made its money back. When it dropped, it was all over like sort of the horror community and, and VOD. So I I would, and now it's it's also got, you know, the streaming contracts. Like conveniently, I read it's coming to Shudder in September. So if you haven't seen it uh, in a, around the time of this release, it'll be on Shudder. Uh, so I bet it's made most of not more, all of its money back. Yeah, I bet you're right. Well, that's good. I... I, I hope so because I'd like to see more uh, Richard Stanley takes on HP Lovecraft type stuff. Agreed. I hope he gets the other projects greenlit. I think he's proven himself that, hey, like, you know, I, there was a big fiasco that happened in the uh, late 90s. And uh, you know what? I'm ready to, to actually get back to, to doing uh, what I want to do. So I'd be very interested to see what the next stories are. I don't know if you guys looked into it at all, but I didn't see what his plans were for the next film or if that had moved forward. What I read, it would be the Dunwich Horror is what he wants to do next. Hmm. So before we get into the plot of this this movie, it needs to be said for the nine millionth time, and it'll be said nine million more times, Nick Cage is a goddamn national treasure. Agreed. That man is fantastic in every... No matter how bizarre, half-assed, even when he's half-assing it, he's 200% half-assing it. The, the choices, like not since like Vampire's Kiss have I seen like, and parts of Mandy have I seen this level of like crazy inner turmoil cage. It's, God, it's so beautiful. And even in shit like National Treasure. Ooh, wait, <laughs> he's a National Treasure. He was a National Treasure. Okay, that works. Like he was great in that too. I mean, he can pull off like standard normal as well. But I mean, God, the guy's range. It seems like when you first look at it, it just seems limited because you're like, oh, it's Nick Cage. And you always identify Nick Cage as Nick Cagey. But, dude, he just, man, he nails it all. I'm just, watching this movie just made me realize how much, like, if Nick Cage or Vincent D'Onofrio's name pops up in a trailer, I'm seeing that movie end of story. You know, Garrett, you've inspired me now to want to write National Treasure 3, where he's got to save a national treasure, but the national treasure is himself. Ooh. I'd, pro- I'd produce this. I'm in. <laughs> Now, I don't know if it'd be that where he like he turn he realizes himself halfway through the movie or if there's another Nick Cage where there's an in-universe Nick Cage and then there there is his character, kind of like Ocean's 12, that garbage movie. I would love nothing more than to have that movie happen and at the very end you find out it's John Travolta oh. with Nick Cage's face on him. <laughs> We tie every fucking Nick Cage movie together. I, I will find a way to make... Man, that should be my next big project. Find a way to make every Nick Cage movie connect. The, the Cageverse. Uh, but y'all, y'all are not Hollywood enough. 
uh, realistically, the, the it would be that the national treasure was inside of all of us all along, mm. and it's the friendships we made along the way that is the real treasure. And then we we zoom into every single person who has a tiny Nick Cage inside of us, <laughs> controlling <gasps> us. You know what? The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but the Nick Cage is the soul of the cell. Oh, the nucleus, if you will. Ooh. Oh, shit. <laughs> you guys got to stop me. I'm going to keep going. Is that like some sort of uh, like Star Wars Force thing? You got to check your blood cells for the nucleus so you can cage out? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, the Chosen One will have more than even Nick Cage himself. Ooh, look out for national face-off <laughs> this Christmas. Oh, wow. Anyway, <laughs> I could watch him yell about alpacas for 45 minutes. Holy shit. They should have been put back in the barn hours ago. You haven't even fed them yet, have you? Dad, I tried, but... What do you mean you tried? Do you have any idea how much those animals cost us? They are alpacas. Alpacas. I just want him to do an alpaca documentary. Uh, sign me up. I'm watching it. It was amazing. Okay, new project. How about... We remove David Attenborough from the planet Earth uh, narration and we put in Nick Cage and he just screams about ostriches while they're on screen. And that's like a, it's a nine disc series. So he can yell about every single animal. Yes, please. If we're going, if we're going crazy narration, we want to avoid Cage. Now, now that's not saying he couldn't do it. I'm just saying Cage is, he's, he's an all encompassing force. Like, sure. You can listen to him and be like, oh, wow. That's moving. I'm I'm changed. But you add the visual of Nick Cage to what he's saying and the way he moves and the way he controls time and space around him as he chooses to willingly do whatever he chooses to willingly do. That's what makes that experience just mm, microcosmic. <laughs> just ah, you're saying he's the total crazy package, right? You can't just take his voice. You got to have the whole performance. It'd be like eating the icing off a cake and being like, oh, man, that's delicious. But, oh, you put it all together and you got cake, baby. I got you covered. Here's what happens. Little Nick Cage in the corner like Clippy pops up and you just, would you like to see me rant about this? <laughs> I see you're trying to narrate a film. <laughs> <laughs> and a little just tiny Nick Cage in the corner of your screen narrates what's going on. It'd be amazing. I, why, why even stop there? Let's just make him a Mr. DNA style <laughs> animated person that, that zips around the screen and Nick Cage is why he narrates. I was just thinking we use Gary Busey because that man's narration would be terrifying and awesome. So I'm like, I'm watching Discovery's Shark Week and then he pops up on the side and is like, what is it? A shark or something? And then I click on it and it just goes crazy. That's it. Yeah. That's it. It'd be like, sharks, these are the animals of the future. Oh man, we need to make an augmented reality app where Nick uh, Cage is just everywhere being Nick Cage. Yeah, the cageality of it all. Oof. <laughs> all right, let's talk about this movie. <laughs> Somebody stop us. I think us. we've gone too deep. <laughs> Reel us back. Um, I would say his co-actors, his co-stars, all also did well. I think everyone brought their A-game to this movie, and they were able to like withstand his level of Nick Cage-iness uh, and repeat it back as needed. I was super impressed with all the actors, even the kids. I was like, all right, you know, this is a, this is a good cast. Yeah, the cast did a really amazing job. So this movie um, is set in the woods of Arkham, in which I am now learning seems to be and I, John, I think you've mentioned this before. This seems to be a location set when a lot of his Lovecraft stories. Is that right? Yes, that is his uh, sort of main setting, either tangentially or often the case, uh, the 
prime location of all of his insanity. Okay, gotcha. That's also where they end up in the show. So um, get used to that name. Get Batman out of your brain. It's not a prison in the Lovecraft universe. So what did you guys think uh, overall, you know, with the the elements of the movie, like the acting and, and the, the lighting and, and all the effects and stuff like that? Uh, it was great. I got the, I rented the Netflix version for this watch and uh, quality was awesome. I loved the colors the, the effects were fine especially you know i'm sure we'll get there but kind of the effect uh the most horrifying part of the film uh awesome so then i think i already touched on the acting i think everyone did a, an awesome awesome job real uh bang up job this movie's so weird because it starts like 30 minutes in i felt like i already watched like an hour of movie i was like well shit we're we're burning to this plot here and then I paused it and I was like, man, I've got so much left because it's like an hour and 50 minutes long. And that's if you didn't watch the deleted scenes, which I did. Um, so if you're ever wanting to see Nick Cage um, suddenly kind of do dump jumping jacks and then insist on being able to do a handstand, check out the deleted scenes. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> the rest are so-so. I almost bought it to get the extras, but I was like, yeah, I'm just going to rent it this time. And now you make me really regret that I didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, most of the deleted scenes are, are kind of like throwaway. Um, there's that one, which is great just because it's it's got some cage action in it. But there actually is an extended scene where um, Ward talks to Ezra and Ezra kind of goes into the background of what Ezra did before he became the um, this kind of like the squatter hermit on their property. And that's pretty interesting. We'll talk about that when we get to that point in the movie. But no, I mean, yeah, we, we definitely nail like everyone did a phenomenal job with the acting. The kids, which I'm usually very hit or miss with kid actors, everyone did a great job. I can't remember the actors' names and the actresses' names, so I'm just going to refer to them as their characters. But even that little kid that did Jack, man, he was so good at like holding these like facial expressions that really just kind of like, what the fuck is he looking at? Like He had me engage. Yeah. Um, the editing, the cinematography, this movie actually starts like the, the cinematography in this is just mind blowing. The movie starts out with like this narration over this gorgeous, like tall wooded area. The, the the trees are slowly blowing in the wind and you're looking straight up at them. And then like the entire, I guess they call it like the Eldritch forest. Um, man, those shots at the beginning, I was like, if the rest of the movie is like this, I'm sold visually. Um, sound design just perfect. There's a, there's a, there's a specific scene in the movie where like they have this like really deep bass rumbly heartbeat thing going on behind the music and you don't really realize it's going on until like at one point I stopped and I was like am I hearing a heartbeat or am I feeling my heartbeat like in my neck um it was the movie I had to pause it just to make sure that it wasn't like me hearing like my pulse and stuff like that um man it's just so good it's so good like no regardless of what you think of the uh the story itself this is this is film like this is the kind of stuff that like you just get stoked when you see it put up there yeah. Now, as, in terms of the, the story, I was a little bit worried up front because the main female daughter of the film, Lavinia, the movie kind of uh, does this narration as you as you come into the film and they introduce her character do some, doing some sort of like Wiccan ritual or something like that over by the, the by like a lake. Right. And I was like, OK, how deep into that is this movie going to get? Um because I don't know, sometimes that stuff can come off a little corny to me. Yeah. And and the actress herself, I think she did fine. But as out of all the actors and actresses, her performance seemed a little more shaky to me. Was that just me or did you guys think that too? 
I think that was the character, honestly, because I, 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 her character, I was like, oh wow, she's every fourteen-year-old girl's room posters like wrapped up into a single character. <laughs> she was the the broody teenager. She was into like her witchcraft stuff, you know. She wanted to escape her small town area and go into the big city, you know. Like it was, it at first I kind of felt the same way. I was like, oh, this is going to be a really cliched character, but I think it actually really worked well for her character because it added this like alternate view of the um the situations that were going on that allowed you to kind of see it from like a completely unique perspective you know she rebels against this plot line but then through her own unique character traits kind of accepts it like when she carves that stuff on her body she carves like the runic symbol that it means like like heaven on earth or like home or it's something like that god i don't remember all the details of my fucking runes but um like, it's really interesting because it's almost like she's accepted what's going on at that point. And it was like so crazy. So I'm actually kind of glad we had that, that, um, that almost stereotypical teenage girl, um, characteristic about her. I agree with you on that. I think that that payoff at the end that you're describing totally made the the beginning worth it. Right. Cause I was like, is this, you know, is this going to be worth it? Is it like you said, is going to be too cliche going through all this stuff? Um, and I guess, you know, I just, I don't particularly identify with that, that kind of character, but yeah, like you said, when she carves that stuff in her head, you're just like, and, and all of her body, you're like, holy shit. Okay. She's really trying to combat this stuff with something that she believes in. Um, she's putting her full faith in there and she's willing to go for it. This is cool. And what's really interesting about that scene too, is, um, we see her at the, uh, the Creek bed doing her, um, her incantation. I don't know what you'd call it. Would it be? A spell. It was a ritual. Ritual. There you go. Um, and Ward, the um, the what was he? A hydrologist <laughs> from whatever university he was from, and I think that's actually a reference to um, another Lovecraft thing, but I'm not positive. He kind of interrupts her, and um, she's. I think she either she or him makes a reference that now her her ritual won't work, or it won't like complete itself, it won't come true. And to be fair, that's true. That holds up at the end because it was interrupted. She does not get out of the situation she was trying to get out of, which I thought was, I don't know if that was intentional or if that was just like a happy story coincidence, but I thought that was kind of unique. Yeah. Was it happenstance that uh, she was unable to get out of that or was it actually, you know, was that ritual going to save her to some degree, I guess. Things that make you go, hmm. Hmm. All right. I hear you. I get the sense that Nathan, uh, Nick Cage's character, and Teresa, played by Jolie, they're not conventional parents, right? This isn't a conventional home so much as like it feels kind of a new agey. And I don't know if you guys picked on on this too, but it just seemed like they're not going to be the type of family that disciplines their kids or they'll have alternative methods of, of discipline. I think that was like the what they had hoped, the kind of parents they had hoped to be, but then they found themselves sort of falling back into the more traditional style of parenting because, you know, they have a conversation where they're like, oh, you know, I'm just like my mother. And even though I said I never would be, uh, and they end up doing, you know, very regular parent type things. Yeah, I couldn't figure out at first why they were out in this 
massive mansion of a country house in the middle of like these eldritch forests. Um, because I know at one point in the beginning, um, when Benny, the older son, and Lavinia are talking, she's like, oh, well, dad did too much acid back when he was a hippie. And so we get the in- the indication that um, Nick Cage's character was like this super hippie for a while. And- but then I had no idea what the mom did until later on. We find out that she's like some kind of stock trader or like some kind of financial broker. But it just seemed weird that someone who was that heavily involved in that kind of stuff would move out to a place that has like dick for connectivity, you know? You mean in terms of like internet connectivity, because that's going to be a running theme throughout the movie is like, there's always a problem with the router and the internet and the wife's losing clients by the truckloads apparently because the, the, when she's doing these meetings, the, she keeps getting knocked offline. Yeah, that was interesting, Garrett. There was a little bit of hints of history to this place here and there. Like Nathan said at one point, hey, this was my dad's farm and we always talked about getting away from the big city. So we moved back out here. There was also some throwaway lines when the only scene, the mayor of this tiny podunk town comes out to, uh, you know, we'll get there in just a sec, but when the meteor crashes, she's like, well, you know, you wanted to live out here, Nathan, you could have sold me the property, you know, back then, but you didn't. And I was like, okay, is there going to be more to this? And I was like, it never pans out, but um, just a little bit for the audience to get uh, a little more life in this place, I guess. Well, we also find out like at the very beginning during um, Lavinia, her ritual, she asked that uh, her mom be free of cancer. Now, I think there's probably some kind of, it wasn't in deleted scenes, but I think there's some kind of like, maybe the mom moved out there to kind of heal after having cancer or she's dealing with a form of cancer. And then Nathan and Teresa have a conversation how they haven't like had sex in six months, you know, because of the treatment and stuff like that. That's actually like legitimate shit. So like I got the impression that they moved out there to kind of get away from everything to kind of, I don't know, maybe change it up or kind of be away from the things that, you know, can be an issue. But to your point of the mayor, basically like you had your chance to sell this to me. Um, it's because they're going to damn this whole place up. Um, that's why the that's why Ward, the hydrologist, is out there. He's there to do a survey before they dam the whole area and make a giant hydroelectric dam, the biggest in New England, as the mayor is so fond of saying. So I think that's I think she's annoyed because someone's now living on that property when they want to make that hydroelectric dam. They do give enough information that if you if you if you want to piece it together, you can. But yeah, it's not spelled out directly. It's kind of throwaway, like you said. Just to round out the family, like uh, Garrett mentioned, Benny, he's kind of this this teenage boy who's just smoking pot, and his parents are well aware of the fact. He goes over to uh, Tommy Chong's house, um, whose whose character's name is Ezra, and he's just he's exactly what you expect Tommy Chong to be. And I thought include his inclusion in this movie was fantastic. I loved his character. Um, I could have used a little more of him, to be honest. Uh, but when he is in the scenes, I was just getting a smile of like, man, I haven't seen this dude in, in forever. I'm glad he's still around. And then we also introduced to Jack, the youngest kid, um, who Garrett said uh, does a great job of, of just kind of being this wide-eyed, innocent kid. And they have an, a dog named Sam. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. The, they decide, Nathan and Teresa, that they're going to try to kind of uh, restart the gears on the the romance and while they're upstairs you know getting reacquainted if you will a giant hyper pink light flashes the screen goes white and a meteor crashes straight into uh, their property leaving this crater and I guess we do need to mention that they the family is completely on well water right so this is right near their water supply 
Yes, and they make a big point of the water, this light um, that's kind of growing. It affects each each family member differently. Like, um, I think it's Benny is like drooling at his computer in this weird trance, staring at the screen. It's all fuzzy. Jack, the little kid's getting freaked out and like goes in the hallway. And then like the dog starts growling at him as the light appears behind the little kid. I don't remember what was happened to Lavinia, but uh, she was on her bed, like listening to headphones or some shit. But yeah, man, when this thing hits, everyone like has this like, what the fuck? Except Jack, who's in this like weird paralyzed trance. So when they go out to check, you know, to see what the hell's happening from this like giant like magenta and the color is magenta, just in case you guys are wondering, that's illustrated this this otherworldly light that that's perpetual to this movie. Um, yeah, everyone's like kind of like, what the fuck? And then Jack is just fully tranced out and they're kind of freaking out. They're like, let's take him to the hospital. And then we get our first um, our first inside look into the past of the family Nathan goes and gets a drink because he's kind of freaking out. He's like, what the fuck? You know, like what's going on? He once he realizes Jack's in that trance. He goes and gets a drink. And the wife basically says, really? Again, right now? Like, so you get the you get the inclination that he's had a problem with this before. That's been an issue with the with them, him and Teresa, at least. They find Jack and like they sit him down on the couch and they're like, hey, there's something seriously wrong with our kid here. We need to get him to the hospital. And he's like, nah, that's an hour away. Let's just see if he's okay first. That um, Their their location is going to come into play several times throughout the movie. While Jack is just kind of staring off at the camera while the family's freaking out around him, the, the, the sound is like this reverb. You know, think about like if, if you hit your head or anytime Hollywood does like the hit on your head, like that ringing sound is going on. It's just... And then all of a sudden he snaps out of it. He's like, oh, hey, you know, what's going on? And they're like, oh, thank God, Jack, you're okay. Nicholas Cage's character, the moment he gets to the meteor, he's like, dude, what is that smell? Do you smell that? And that's a recurring thing for his interaction with this um, power of whatever it is. Yeah, he, he describes it a couple of different ways. Wet dog, burning dog. Then he's like, oh, it's like a cancer ward. He has a, a lot of different analogies. Then we cut to the next day, and that's when the mayor comes out, right? Yeah. And she's like, you know, we should get this on the news. And Nathan's like, no, I don't want any of that shit to happen. And that's when she's like, uh, he's like, oh, I think my kid's sick. You know, is there a doctor open on the weekend? She's like, uh, maybe at Arkham. You know, but that's an hour or however long away. She's like, and that's where we get the whole scene where she's like, you should have sold me the land when you had a chance. Welcome to the country. She's like a real dick about it. Uh, and then she just drives off. <laughs> she is a real dick about it. So yeah, after the mayor leaves, like um, that's when Ward comes in. And then we get this like kind of like almost a meet cute where you realize Lavinia's kind of got like a little bit of a crush on Ward. And he's like talking to the sheriff and um, Nathan about the meteorite and at this point they're like you know ezra might know something he's like who's ezra he's like oh this old squatter hermit that lives down on my property benny can show you the way so benny at that point takes um ward down to see ezra and this is the first time we get to meet ezra so benny and ward are walking up to ezra's shack this is the first time we're going to meet him and then he looks up and he's like hey those those cameras and he's like yeah ezra used to be an electrician and yada 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 and then, then we get introduced to tommy chong's character and he's definitely an old hippie who is you know doing drugs he's smoking weed he asked ward if he wants a hit and ward's like no no he's like well what about some coffee and he's like yeah okay i'll take some of that so there's a little quick interaction we find out that um ezra's cat 
is named G-Spot. And this is the part that kind of confused me because he was like, this place has its own history. And he's kind of given like this cryptic, like mystic type thing where he's given a little bit of backstory, but not enough to really piece anything together. And then they hand him uh, the coffee and Ward looks in the coffee and there's like some weird film on top of the water. And Ezra's character says, oh, the water is fine, but it always has a little bit of this weird funk every now and then. And and Ward's like, well, that shouldn't happen this time of year. As it starts raining at Ezra's place, when Ward uh, takes the coffee for testing and then the family goes back to the house, that night, as they're just having like normal family time, Lavinia is outside and Nathan comes outside. He's like, hey, what are you doing out here? And she's like, it's beautiful. And then we see the lightning in the sky consistently hitting this meteorite on the ground. She's like, it's attracting the lightning. And then the next day you come out and and Nathan's kind of like, yeah, that's crazy. The next day you come out, the meteorite's gone. There's a massive hole in the ground and you find out that the meteorite has like sunk into the ground, into the bottom of the well. So it's now in the water. It's now contaminated and um, affected the water. Then that's when Ward goes and tells everyone, hey, don't drink the water. There's some gross shit happening. And Ezra plays the recording of the weird sounds. I don't think you should be drinking that. I found something in the water. Just a trace, really. Um, Shh. You can hear them down there. Hear them? Hear who? Yeah, I could hear them while I slept. Shuffling around, chattering. See, I knew no one would believe me unless I got it on Memorex. What exactly am I supposed to be listening to? The people under the floor, dude. The aliens. He's like got a uh, stethoscope on the ground, pretty much. He's like, can you hear him? And it's some really bizarre sounds. And Ward's just like, oh, I'm sure it's just, you know, interference or geothermic energy. But Ezra's like, nah, dude, this is alien shit. And at this point, we see a couple of changes. Yeah. And they're, you know, mom's making dinner and stuff. And like, she's cracking open eggs and they're like kind of this weird bloody mixture of a yolk and stuff. And I was like, was that because of the meteor? Like, I know we start to see the color um, swirl around and change everything around it. I thought it was like an embryo egg where it was like half formed chicken. But yeah, it was like bloody and disgusting. And the mom's in there cutting carrots, getting ready for dinner. And then there's like a couple scenes of like the dad being like, hey, get the alpacas. Oh, they had that, the conversation because they have alpacas. And um, Nathan's character is like, oh, they're the the farm animal of the future or some, some shit like that. And I was like, I don't know if that's true or not. But um, yeah, there's like a whole milking scene too, right? At some point in the movie, they're milking alpacas. And he's like, you got to be real gentle with the boob. And I'm like, you really calling alpacas teats boobs, dude? <laughs> takes great patience technique and of course you have to be very gentle with the uh, boobs but once you get them warmed up nice one dad (laughs) (laughs) it was a really uncomfortable scene yeah i think he was trying to make ward uncomfortable because at this point he knew that lavinia liked ward and i think he was trying to kind of put the the weirdness to 10. So I think that was a, a choice on purpose, but gotcha. It was one of those dad things like, Hey, you're going to date my daughter. I'm going to put you through the ringer a little bit. Yeah. So the news crew comes that day after the milking scene and all that fun stuff. There is that scene where Lavinia kind of talks to Jack and says, Hey, what are you doing? He's like, he's whistling. And he's like, Oh, I'm talking to my friends in the well. 
then the news crew shows up. That's when Nathan's like, oh, fuck, here we go. And then they they interview him. And then we cut to the mom making dinner and the family watching uh, the dad on TV, which they've painted him out to be this crazy UFO sighting uh, character. That scene was great. I thought the way he reacted to that was so genuinely funny. He's even got lines like, how come no one gave me a comb so I could run it through my hair? I look like, a, I look like shit. I look crazy. Super good. Um, and then they ask him if he drinks. It's just this great moment. And so the mom's in there just trance-like cutting up carrots and cutting up carrots. And then uh, Nathan goes, hey, Jack, go get your mom. Tell your mom to come in here. So Jack goes in there and then grabs his mom's shirt. And then she chops off her fucking fingers, like two of her fingers. She just cuts them right off because she's fully in trance mode. And then Jack kind of snaps her out of it. And she holds up her hand and says, dinner's ready. As if she doesn't even realize what she's done. They freak out. Nathan takes her to the hospital, which as as we now know is an hour away. And uh, that's when he tells um, Denny or uh, Benny, not Denny from the room. Um, Benny, you're the man, you know, take care of the place. Make sure the alpacas are put up by 10. That night is when Ward actually tests the water and realizes that it's contaminated somehow, but he can't tell with what or how. And then that's when all his electronics kind of go off. There's that weird ethereal like shape that is like bending his light around it. This is our first taste of something being there that we can't fully see in traditional means. Like like when certain lights are aimed at it and stuff like that, it appears to be kind of bending it or distorting it a little bit. And then, yeah, the next day is when Ward heads back to all the places to... Um, to warn them about drinking the water. You know, it's the next morning and, and this movie is going to start doing some stuff where your sense of time in the movie is going to be really off put. Like it'll be daytime, then it'll all of a sudden be nighttime. And they even mentioned this later on is like, no one can really sense, uh, get a sense of what's happening with time because apparently this um, meteorite and whatever came with it can affect time and the perception of as well as their surroundings. Jack-Jack is just sitting by himself through a, a good chunk of the movie staring at the well. And I think one of you guys mentioned that he's like, I'm talking to my friends. haha. And like, there's like this high pitch uh, whistling that happens from time to time. And John, I was going to ask you about this because this high pitch sound also happens in the Lovecraft Country movie right before some of these Lovecraft monsters show up on screen. Is that something that is kind of tied into his storytelling, like these audible sounds? I got to tell you, I think you're way overestimating my Lovecraftian knowledge. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and try me in like three months when I've read through this, you know, 1200 page tome. Okay. Of the stories that I've read so far, I don't remember any reference to high pitched tones. But honestly, I don't, you know, I haven't read nearly enough to give you a definitive answer. Okay, no problem. Yeah, but also during this morning, the alpacas are they're starting to be strange, and and Benny's like, I already took them out and I fed them, and like the family's starting to really confuse, and I was confused as well. I was like, well, did he feed him or did he just not know? And then at some point, Benny just wanders off in the woods, and he's like, I couldn't find my way home. I was lost. Yeah. Um. So really, this 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 entity, um, which I guess maybe we should kind of describe it a little better, um, is affecting every family member differently. So like Garrett said, it's like this weird ethereal color that just kind of kind of wisps around, right? Almost like a, a specter of sorts. And it's in magenta. It's always very brightly pink, which I guess is redundant when I say magenta, if you know what color that is. And everything around it that it touches is starts to turn pink, right? So we, we get a zoom in inside the well. There's like these weird 
eggs in there and one hatches and then this creepy ass alien looking praying mantis flies out of the top and it's completely magenta and Jack is just looking at it and I was like dude I would be freaking the fuck out if I saw this thing right I totally thought of Garrett during this scene because we get some monster vision here oh that's right yeah when it flies out we don't we see it through the lens of the the insect uh and yeah it it, its whole view is also magenta and really weird and awesome i was okay with this monster vision for the fact that um right before we go to monster vision we zoom in on this creature's face and its eye structure and situation is so unique that you're like oh that's that is very foreign that's very alien and then we do get a, a a monster vision for a moment i was okay with it after that because um we didn't continue to get monster vision. It was, that was the only time we got monster vision in the movie. Even with the cat, we didn't get cat vision. I don't remember. That's why I'm asking. I don't know if we got cat vision. I don't think we did. No, we didn't. We only see the cat in that car scene. Far as I can remember. Oh yeah. That's crazy as shit too. So like, yeah, as all that stuff's happening, like as you, as you said, Mark, you know, we're getting, we're getting these moments and you know, you just called out the whole thing with the alpacas, like, you know, Benny's supposed to be putting them up and then they're out and it seems like, oh, did he forget or did they get out themselves? But when you bring it up like that, and again, this is my, my second watch of this, you know, like I found myself still being confused and not knowing, did he just not put them up because he got distracted and lost because time and space is being like kind of warped around him? Or are they getting out somehow? And I thought that was really good to to not clarify that because it really did have me questioning what what was truly reality with these characters. And I think you need that about halfway through this movie because otherwise it just seems like you're normal like oh it's it's building up to something but when you have these little moments of like very bizarre things happening when they try to uh nathan tries to call his daughter on the cell phone from the the hospital and all you get is like distorted like electronic screaming like a man screaming and it's like like without that stuff it just seems like our our main bad guy, the alien, whatever, was just kind of like dicking around. But when you get these these items, it really does cast this kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Which I really think heightened everything for me at the end of this movie. I think he thinks he put the alpacas away and like maybe even in his mind, arguably maybe in his reality, he put the alpacas away. But this entity is so able to fuck with everything that, you know, maybe he just imagined it. Or maybe the entities creating different realities for different people. Like it, it, its power. This I do know is very Lovecraftian. Its power set is so ill-defined that it could be either one. You're right. It could be. It could be any of the above. Which, again, like to my point, is just really goes to creating this ill-defined. You know, this is what's happening with so many horror movies with like ghosts and stuff like that, you know, specifically like uh, the Conjuring movies and things like that. You really have a good idea of what your ghost can and can't do and what you expect them to do. But with this level of like uncertainty that this movie, you know, portrayed, it, it really it made me more scared of this ambiguous non-visual thing it was like holy shit like i need it's like I, I was wanting to know more constantly just so i could feel more grounded in what i was up against you know you know garrett i think a lot of this to to call out something more recent is the entity of pennywise from stephen king's it and not so much the clown but the ancient being version 
you know, that makes you see individual things. You know, during this moment with the alpaca confusions going on, Lavinia starts having blood shoot out of the sink or something like that when she goes to wash the knife. And I was like, okay, is that kind of like the Pennywise thing where only that person's seeing it or is this really actually happening? I I was taking whatever this entity was, maybe it is kind of like a Cthulhu type ancient deity of some sort. Yeah, I imagine that's what its, you know, intention is. And And I think that's like always the coolest part of Lovecraft from, you know, what I read and what I know about it is the idea of like, he doesn't explain a lot of things because from the human mind can't understand it, right? We can know under more understand what these Cthulhu or alien creatures are doing, you know, than an ant trying to explain human. It's just so beyond us. And I think existentially, that's really scary. Uh, and I, it's hard to get on film, but I think that's what they're trying to do in this movie in the sense that they don't explain it and they don't really show us a lot about the monster. We just see its effects, I imagine, you know, kind of uh, on purpose. Well, no, you're, you're, you're exactly right, John. Like you are 100% correct because in the final um, epilogue slash monologue from Ward, he explains that like, so there, there's so few of us now that remembered what happened here. You know, we don't ever fully have a grasp on what it is. And then it creates this this chaos that we can't comprehend as it opens our eyes to this unfathomable like concept of life outside of what our brains can comprehend. Like he says that almost like, you know, to a T of what you're saying. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the Lovecraft mythology is, you know, we have Cthulhu which everyone has is this giant, you know, creature and stuff like that. And that's great. But if you look at like the bigger Lovecraft mythology of like some of his monsters and these elder gods and stuff like that, some of them are just like energy beings and these like bizarre ass fucking concepts, you know, and they, and they often say that these are what we perceive because we can't perceive what they truly are. And, uh, and then, like you said, Mark, that kind of goes to whatever it was. I think that's along the same lines of that. And I think that's what makes those concepts so scary but this movie in particular, because of that ambiguous, is it doing this? Is it doing that? And, you know, what's in our minds versus what's actually happening? I think that just it's one of the best examples I've seen in a long time of portraying that on film. And I think to lend to that a little bit more, we have it's the aliens, man. They're under us. They're in the ground. That is Ezra's best explanation that maybe the human mind could come up with, right? I don't think what we're dealing with is aliens in form of like, you know, from Mars or from Planet X or what have you. This is just the best way that we can comprehend what is entering into our world and is just fucking with everything around us is, you know, um, existence as we know it, really. And when Ezra says like he's like, you know, when Ward's like, okay, cool, I'm leaving now. Like, that's a little bit crazy, bro. You know, he's like, I'll keep an eye out for G-Spot, your cat. And then Ezra looks up and goes like, if you see him, you may not be able to recognize him anymore, which really like tapped in this whole like, what does Ezra know? Like, what is he privy to information wise that we just as an audience member have not been exposed to yet. Well, they say, Garrett, that when you do them psychedelic drugs, man, it opens your third eye and maybe he is just more in tune with the side of spirituality or metaphysical reality that's happening around him. So maybe he just knows a little bit more because he's altered his mind. So you're saying we should do some more drugs. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. 
All right, cool. <laughs> if you really want to get prepared, you know, you're wearing Crocs, Garrett. You're halfway there. You really got to just start doing all the drugs to prepare yourself. Oh, don't bring up the Crocs, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I should have never mentioned anything. I know you're going to throw that in my face forever now. <laughs> yeah. So the parents are coming back from the hospital at this point. The The surgery was a success. Uh, she got her fingers reattached. And then they almost hit a cat. But it like looks like this weird alien creature that we've never seen before. And that's when uh, Nathan, Nick Cage's character, first time was like, what was that? You saw that, right? What the hell was that? I think that's the first time we actually get any kind of like John Carpenter, the thing style other than that bug earlier, that's the first time we actually see any kind of like visual alien-esque transformation happen. But um, they get back to the house. Jack is in, they call him Jack-Jack, which is the same name from The Incredibles, which always threw me off the whole movie because I'm like, oh, Jack-Jack. He's standing in the driveway. They pull up. At the same time, the kids are running outside to see, you know, where he is. And the parents just lay into the Benny and Lavidia and just like, dude, this is how you take care of your, your family while you're gone. What the fuck? Nathan goes to put the alpacas up and that's when Lavinia and Benny are like, should we warn him about what's out there? Like, so they're on, like they know some shit is up. Right. You, you really start to see the effect of the color changing everything around it. Right. At some point, all these new plants started popping up around the well and they're like, Hey, did you plant those? And they're like, no, um, the grass is starting to turn magenta. Uh, at some point, the dog wanders off into this color nebula while Jack is sitting out there and you hear the dog kind of scream and you're just like, oh, fuck, what is happening? Nathan goes upstairs after putting the alpacas away to take a shower because he's still complaining of the cancer and dog smell. And while he's in there, there's just like this translucent jellyfish thing chilling out in his, his drain and it like attaches itself to his hand. And I'm like, well, what the fuck is that? You know, like we, we've seen the color change all this stuff around him. I was curious what that originally was. And I don't think we ever got an answer to that. I was like, is it just supposed to be some alien jellyfish thing? Well, that is part of the alien energy slash entity. Because um, remember early when that we first saw the, the film on top of the coffee that uh, Ward took back? It looked like, like an oil slick. Like a like a thin little sections of oil slick on top of his coffee, but like clear. Mm, I think okay. this was just a consolidated version of that stuff because all that stuff happens after the the meteorite gets into the well water. Dude, that that made me jump. The thing in the shower when it like attaches to his hand and he throws it made me jump so hard. I was like, that's my safe space. No, <laughs> no one's messing with me in the shower. No, definitely. And and we also see a physical transformation in Nathan as well. And man, once it, it's really subtle the first time you see it, like he's walking around outside and you can just see his arms are starting to turn all dry and scaly. And you're just like, oh man, that is disgusting looking. Well, yeah, because he's in that weird trance and he's, um, and, and John, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but isn't he picking vegetables? And then like he makes a comment that like, oh, you're so big and hearty and you're a month early. And that's when we first see his... Yeah, he's getting tomatoes. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's like tomatoes and peaches. And he's really excited because they're a month early and they're so big. And they clearly look deformed, though. Like, But he's not realizing this. He's not seeing this. And the mom's upstairs pissed off because she's losing clients because of the Wi-Fi. She runs downstairs and it's like, you need to fix that dish. And he's like, I did. He takes a bite out of the tomato and then throws it down. And then starts taking a bite of every piece of fruit and it all tastes like death to him. And then he starts classic cage freak out. 
um, starts throwing the the uh, the vegetables in the trash as hard as he can, and he yells "slam dunk" at one point, and that's my favorite new Nicholas Cage line: him throwing a tomato, going "slam dunk." Um, <laughs> and then the wife doesn't even seem to notice. She's just like, "You need to fix the Wi-Fi." Like she's so weirdly laser focused on her issue, he's laser focused on his. Like there's clear disconnection happening between all these characters at this point, except for. Benny and uh, Lavidia. Yeah, and they make a plan to get out of there. They're like, fuck this. We got to get out of this town, dude. Hey, Benny, you had a girlfriend back in like St. Louis. I don't know. I'm just made up a, a city. Uh, like, let's go hang out at her place. And he's like, well, we are not really dating anymore. And then other like the, the color starts affecting more than just the organics, right? And they're like, now the car doesn't work. So now we're stuck here. And then at one point, don't they try to take the horse and the horse just runs the fuck off? He's like, fuck you guys. I'm out of here. Yeah. Comet makes a break for it. Uh, he's, he's having none of their shit. Which good on Comet. He probably is the only survivor. <laughs> well, you see that Comet's eyes are starting to turn a little bit purple. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. You get a little flash where he's not fully changed, but he's got a little bit of like the like the purple in his eye. And he's like, the magenta and he's like okay fuck this and yeah he does break free and runs away so everyone's stuck on this this farm at this point and just to add to the the technology starting to go haywire right you know we have the introduction of the phone calls earlier being all staticky well now like the hd tv is turned on and it's producing like old time you know crt tv static and there's like patterns in it and nathan is just sitting there watching it at nighttime like like mesmerized lavinia is just like upstairs reading her wiccan books and and uh this is where she starts carving in all the symbols all over her body and then puts a little diamond in her forehead for protection. Lavinia comes down and she's carved herself up and Nathan's like, what have you done to yourself? And at that point, you start hearing the alpacas screaming from the barn. And um, we see that all the alpacas have like turned inside out into this giant John Carpenter's The Thing type monster. So Jack-Jack runs outside. When the dog went missing... Jack started freaking out and he ran outside to uh, he ran outside to find the dog. Yeah. He's like, I can hear the dog and he runs outside and that's when they get hit with the color. And yeah, yeah, you're right. Because yeah, because the mom and Jack are like fused together and it like I think Benny says like it looks like she's trying to resorb him. And I was like, that's the freakiest fucking sounding thing ever. Like that's just so and it looks hideous. Like this is no joke special effects. Man, This did this feel like a practical effect to you guys? Because I feel like this was practical. Oh, I don't know. With the budget of the film, it feels like it would have had it been CGI. But I mean, maybe it more, I guess, likely was a combination, I bet. Yeah, probably combination. Because, yeah, you're, you're totally right. They basically, uh, Jack runs out to look for the dog. They're running away after seeing the alpaca stuff. The light comes out of the well and blasts the mom and the kid, get fused. They bring him inside to the couch. And that's when you're right. The dad's like, I'm going to go take care of this shit. And the way that Nick Cage says it, too, he's like, I'm going to go handle it. Like, he's just like in this, like, I got this. And you're just like, so fucking awesomely weird. Um, so, yeah, he goes out, kills the alpacas. He's going to do the mom and the kid at that point. And you're just like, whoa like i thought that was happening i was like i do not care to see this like up close like if you better do this off camera this is going to be extremely hard to watch he's like all right you know i have to handle the situation with your mom and that's when lavinia goes oh you're going to handle it like you handled the alpacas but he can't do it (laughs) he like leans down and like starts kissing her and he's like you'll always be my golden lady and the strands of whatever stuck to his lips and her lips and then he goes back for repeated kisses and it keeps happening i'm just like 
bro, like I get it. You're, you're not in the right mind, but. And I took that as almost like a brainwashing kiss. Like as soon as he did that, that's what changed his mind on shooting her in the head. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. It was so gross though. You're right, man. The effects on this film are on point. And like, I also think this film does a really good job of knowing when to linger and when to cut away. Right. So like they, they lingered on those kisses and it was so gross and really uncomfortable. You're right. That get, that initiated a reaction in me, uh, probably as strong as seeing the alpacas have their heads blown off. Because they do that a couple times where like some of the violence is off camera and you're like, I appreciate that. But I mean, it's like, yeah, they, they, they purposely choose what they show. And I think they did a good job of balancing that really well. Yeah, the scene where the mom cut off her fingers was another like master class in suspense. We kind of rushed through it, but like if you watch it, man, the way they edit it and they cut to her, you know, she's cutting uh, carrots and it keeps getting closer and closer. And then it keeps cutting back to Nathan watching himself on TV and being upset about that. And she keeps getting closer. It it was very Hitchcock. The suspense is knowing that there's a bomb is, is excellent, excellent, excellent filmmaking. Yeah. And when it happens that you, they show it real quick and they cut away and you're like, oh, thank goodness. And then she holds up her hand and then they're gone. You're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like you just got me like you can you made me feel like I was OK. And then you like pulled me right back into it. Like, oh, by the way, no, you're not done yet. And it was like, but yeah, you're right. Very Hitchcockian in the way that they did that scene. And a lot of scenes in this like that build tension have uh, very Hitchcock elements to it that were just but you're, you're absolutely right. The the what they show versus what they don't show is perfectly balanced in this film. And I think they do a great job of using it to um, its greatest capability. And at that point, like with that said, we get to the next part, which just drove me crazy. This is my biggest problem with the movie. Yeah, this is the scene that I have biggest umbrage with as well. And I think it's when Benny goes into the well, right? Yes. Yes. So dumb. It makes no sense. That I have it written. I was like, Benny bro. And the thing is, after all he's seen, after all he's done and been okay with, and I get Sam's his dog, and don't get me wrong, I I would probably do some questionable, stupid stuff to save, you know, my animals and, and situations as well. But he looks in the well, sees at the bottom of the, like, they're, so Lavinia, Lavinia and him are about to, like, walk away. Like, the horse runs off, and they're like, well, fuck it, we'll walk through the woods. But then they hear the dog howling from the well. He looks down there, sees that the entire bottom of the well is like this weird, funky, death-smelling, like, goo. And he's like, I'm going down. <laughs> and you're just like, no, dude, no. There's nothing down there for you anymore. Right. I assumed this was the the color affecting his decision-making abilities. Because it's not... You don't really ever see the dog. You just hear it. And it's not realistic that that dog is surviving down there. And, you know, I totally agree with Garrett. I would do a lot to save my dog. But you also have to know when to cut your, like, losses. I mean, it's not going to do anyone any good if we're both dead. So uh, I just wrote it off with, like, okay, it had to have been the color, like affecting this person because no no matter how much you love your dog nobody's climbing into that crazy ass well i headcanon that as well because i was like i was like it's got to be the light no one goes because even lavinia is like it's just a dog and i was like yo i don't agree with that sentiment at this point she's got a point let's take all the otherworldly element out of this situation let's say that a dog had fallen into a well and a boy decides to climb in and get the dog how is he gonna get out you aren't gonna carry like a 35 pound dog like like where what are you going to do? 
uh, tie his legs around your waist. You're not getting out of the well, you stupid kid. <laughs> he said he was like, he's like, I'm going down there. I'll put because she's like, how are you going to get out? And he's like, I'll put the dog um, on the bucket and you can pull you can pull Sam up and then you can pull me up with the bucket. Like I'll hang on to it and you can pull me up. So he actually did say how he planned to do it. It was a dumbass idea, but he did technically say, let's it. get Mr. Wizard over here. I want to see a dog bucket challenge and see if he can actually, or the Mythbusters. Let's get the myth man, Dr. Uh, Mr. Wizard. I'm really aging myself right there. Nobody even knows who that fucking is anymore. <laughs> uh, let's get the Mythbusters to put like a 40 pound dog on a bucket and see how long the dog stays on it. Yeah, that I feel like my dog would jump off because I mean I love my dog to death. It's he's not or she's not very bright, uh, and also I don't think a well bucket could support a human's weight. So I think he would have been stuck down there. That's exactly why kids get stuck in wells. If it was as easy as <laughs> grab onto the bucket, we'll pull you up. Uh, this wouldn't be a problem. If it yeah. was that easy, guys, everyone be getting out of wells. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but you know what? Hey, I'll give this movie props for reversing that episode of Lassie where Timmy gets stuck in the well. Now it's the dog stuck in the well and Timmy's got to go save it. <laughs> Remix. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. So at this point, Benny goes down and he like halfway down. He's like, oh, shit, this is a bad idea. There's nothing down here but death. And then that's when the light cracks open the goo at the bottom of the water sucks Benny down. Lavinia is at this point like, oh shit. And then she gets grabbed by the dad and then the dad in full like Nick Cage like crazy is like, this is a family and family means sticking together. You're not going to go anywhere. And like he is like dragging her and he's like, it's time to feed your mom. Like, and he throws her in the attic with the fused mom and then locks it with like this massive chain and lock. And so at this point, Lavinia is locked in with like the mom creature I kind of felt bad for Lavinia, but also I didn't because she did guilt her dad about wanting to shoot the mom. And I got to say, if I were fused in that situation and that mom sound, seemed like she was in misery and pain, the nicest thing that 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 Nathan could have done is probably shoot her. But I think the reason he hesitates is because Lavinia is like, oh, you're going to kill mom? Jeez, you fucking animal. Uh, when he was doing the nice thing. Yeah, you're right. I agree with that. I think I think that's I think that's correct. I mean, you know, I definitely think that opened the the window for the, the color to kind of convince him not to do it. Um, as you guys said, with like the... Um, <laughs> the hypnosis kiss. <laughs> Nathan's downstairs watching the, the the creepy TV and he's like seeing his family in the room with him. He's talking about like, hey, don't worry, baby. We're going to go on a trip. We're going to go to the Greek Isles. We're going to go to, you know, Capistrano or whatever the hell places that he names off. And at this point, Ward and the, uh, the sheriff are on their way back to... Um, the property because Ward goes to meet with the um, the mayor to say, hey, there's contamination in this water. You guys shouldn't dam this up. It might be a, a problem. The mayor's having none of it. She's like, fuck you. The contracts are signed. Get the fuck out. You know, like that whole, you know, typical awful mayor situation. And then Ward goes back outside and is about to leave. And then the sheriff goes, hey, Ward, let me ask you a question. We found this over by the gardener's place, uh, which is the uh, the main character's last names. And then he's like, it looks like a bunch of rabbits and a fox and all this stuff fused together into this massive animal lump. He's like, there's even a cat in there. Ward sees that it's G-Spot, like fused into this thing. And he's like, holy shit, you found this by the, the Garner place? And they're like, let's go check it out. So yeah, the sheriff and Ward are on their way back to the, um, the farm. At this point, 
everything's different. The ground is magenta grass and flowers. The trees are moving in this like really weird kind of like blurry way. There's flowers everywhere. The water is like just completely weirdly oil slicked. I mean, the full transformation is happening. So bam, they run back to the property. And does he go to Ezra first or is it after the house? So they go to the house first and, and that's when Nathan Nathan's chilling out inside and they're like, oh, hey, it's Mr. Waterman or whatever he says. He's like, and he comes inside and they're like, where's all your family? He's like, what are you talking about? We're sitting right here. Have a look, you know? And it's just him. He's just sitting there by himself watching TV and they're like, oh shit, what is happening here? At this point, they hear Lavinia scream up in the attic because the mom creature, we don't see this yet, but is like trying to attack her. So they run up to the attic. Um, Ward tries to bust open the door, can't do it. The sheriff's like, out of my way, son. Bam, barrels into it, knocks the door open. We see that the mom creature is now this weird insect looking thing, is got Lavinia on the ground, is going to eat her. Pretty much like she's hungry and she's going to eat Lavinia. Ward's like, don't do it. And then the sheriff like aims his gun, but can't quite pull the trigger because he's freaking the fuck out. And then all of a sudden, pow, the mom bug gets shot in the face. And then we cut back and it's basically Ward or uh, Nathan, the dad, who's up there. And he's like, that's not my family anymore. And then goes up and point blank shoot the kid face on the monster. And it's like, holy fuck, man. Lavinia gets picked up by Ward. They're going out the front door. Nathan's following them. The sheriff's coming with them. And they get outside, and then the lights start coming out of the well, like tentacles, like these like tendril, crazy visuals are going to stop them from leaving. And then it starts going towards uh, Ward and Lavinia. And at this point now, I had a question. You see Nathan come out, and he's like, the colors, and he aims the gun. Was he aiming at Ward or was he aiming at the colors? Because the sheriff then shoots him thinking that he was going to shoot Ward. It wasn't clear. I wasn't sure, to be honest. I thought he was aiming at Ward. I thought he was aiming at the colors. Because he had proven himself to be violent and he has already, like earlier in the film, right, with like the Apalka scene or whatever, kind of proven his dislike. I guess that would make sense. And he's helping Lavinia escape. We just tried the feed to, you know, his wife monster. Uh, so there's like a lot of strikes against poor Ward. That's why I thought he was going for Ward. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, the sheriff is like, Ward, watch out. And then boom, shoots Nicholas Cage right in the stomach. Down goes Cage. Lavinia runs over and she's like, my dad, oh my God, no. And then he's dying and she's like, don't leave, don't leave. And then that's when uh, Ward's like, hey, we got to go. Like, we got to get the fuck out of here. And she's like, no, I'm staying here with my family. I'm home. Lavinia is a lost cause at this point. You realize that she is fully affected by the color, which I really appreciated because I was like, if this chick gets out of here, A, her therapy bills for the rest of her life are going to be astronomical. <laughs> um, she's never going to be fucking cool again after this. You know, I mean, I hope that she would be, but like, this is beyond fucked up in every way. So the fact that she chose to stay, I was like, okay. You kind of knew a little bit because we didn't talk about it because it wasn't a huge scene, that, but you kind of knew that she was really affected by the color because she she like cut herself up in some sort of Wiccan ritual that she was trying to do. So she carved with a knife like all over her body and she put like a rune right in the middle of her forehead. Uh, so she'd 
pretty seriously self-harmed already up to this point of the movie. Yeah, but I thought she did that to basically like try to make the the spell so she could get out of there. I thought that was her like last resort to try to make the uh the ritual happen so she could leave because that's what she was praying for at the beginning with her first ritual. So I thought that was her just trying to give it another go. But yeah, when she when she carved the rune for like home on her fucking head or like heaven on earth or whatever it is. Like I was like, Oh shit, she might be gone. So yeah, when that happened, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. She's legit gone. So at this point, Ward is like, I'm going to go get Ezra. Let's go. So the sheriff and Ward run down to Ezra. They're walking up and they're hearing um, Ezra talk and he's babbling about something like sucking the life out of everything down in the rocks. It lives in the well. It grew down there. Ezra. Poisoning everything. Changing everything. Into something like the world that grew. Into what it knows. We all know what's coming. But we can't give it away. It's got everything that lives. They all drunk the water. They got strong on them. Sheriff? Fed itself on them. It came from the stars. All of our exposition for this alien being it basically is like a cancer like a cancer verse type thing uh where it basically just like sucks and devours the energy of wherever it lands and and does its thing and it's basically like going to send that back to its home i don't know like there was a lot of information there but yeah ezra's just basically tapped in and just expositioning the whole background they get inside and this part really fucked me up you guys yeah so they walk into ezra's place and uh and i agree with garrett this is pretty fucked they turn you know his chair he's sitting in a chair and they turn him around and you just see that he's like a dried out husk of a hippie it's a really great effect but also terrifying and what all was playing you know that was sort of giving that that backstory was a recording that he had made terrible terrible way to go it did not look like a pleasant way to die for poor ezra yeah he's like a husk of like a husk of skin that's like dried out and cracking and like he's like recorded this like monologue to basically say like you know like this is what's going on to kind of like from what he found out whether being his third eye open or listening to the ground or whatever but he's tapped into what the fuck's going on and as you look at his skin and as we zoom in you see that um there's that magenta glow like gestating underneath his skin and his body. And he like says that like they suck all the like life and energy out of things. And then they just leave it like a husk of, and then you like, that's when his like head opens up and the light starts pouring out. And then Ward's like, get the fuck out. (laughs) We gotta go. I do want to mention that the, the Tommy Chong's voice that's been looped on this magnetic tape player. um, If you want to get me good, if you start like fucking and modulating a voice to sound really off and demonic and dead, like there, there's a certain way to do it. And this movie did that. It's just, it creeps me out. Agreed. Looking at Tommy Chong's corpsed body with the glowing lights underneath and hearing his voice all modulated and fucked up like that, that is probably the, the scene in the movie uh, that gave me the most tension, I guess. Yeah. 
And what I liked about the modulation is it wasn't like super heavy handed, right? Sometimes it's so over the top that it's ridiculous, but it was just enough to be like, whoa, this is creepy sounding. Uh, so totally agree, Mark. It was a- another well done aspect of the scene. Yeah, it was like the tape was being stretched and stuff. Yeah, you're right. There, There is a level of modulation that just comes out so fucking cheesy. Like you, someone just grabbed a toy voice box and is pretending to be a demon. And that is not effectual at all. <laughs> it's got to be just subtly enough, just different enough from normal that makes you feel uh, creepy crawlies under your skin. Yeah, that was it was really, really well done. Like and so, yeah, the light busts out of his head and then Ward's like, get the fuck out and then him and the sheriff start hauling ass back to um the main house and it's at this point um what what happened does something, does something happen to the sheriff i can't yeah remember. a tree like a mutated living tree yes. just impales the fucking sheriff picks him up and i was like whoa this movie just turned to 11 on us <laughs> It snatches him up. A new like, fighter has entered the ring. It's like, hey, look, it's a tree. What the hell's going on? <laughs> yeah, like they're running and like Ezra, or uh, not Ezra, but uh, Ward is in front of the sheriff and the sheriff just gets plucked up off the ground and you're like, oh shit. What? I, I didn't know what grabbed him. I thought it was like that, that little bug from the beginning had like grown to supersize and I was like, if this is a giant fucking bug, like a la it type situation, I was like, I'm not going to be thrilled about this. And then no, it wasn't. The tree like evil deaded this guy and like fucking like stabbed him through the face and vined him up on the tree and squished him. It was so fucking creepy. And at that point, it went next level for me at that point because I was like, oh, my God, everything around Ward now is potentially a death trap. Yeah, I totally agree. That was savage, man. I was not expecting that a tree to come out of nowhere. Uh, another just well-earned twist and i was just like what the hell so now we're like the very like final part of the movie and um you know ward looked up and saw that the sheriff got destroyed by the trees he's running up to the house he runs inside and he sees that nathan is sitting there watching the tv like the dad who was shot in the stomach is sitting there watching tv and he's like talking to his family and you're like what the fuck and then ward looks over and the lights are going full strobe crazy. The TV's going nuts. Like everything is just, it's its starting to go like just tits up chaos everywhere. And then he sees like these ethereal, like ghost versions of the family sitting in the living room, very reminiscent to kind of what um, Nathan was saying he was seeing earlier. And then Nathan, he's like, you know, he's like, but you're dead. And Nathan's like, join the family or some shit like that. And then starts chasing him to the house Ward runs down into the wine cellar, closes the door. Nathan is just banging on it, full cage crazy. And then the next thing we see is we see colors shooting out of the well, like this giant like light tornado whirlwind shooting up into the sky, breaking through the clouds. It looked like it was making a wormhole and it was sending all this energy and everything up through this wormhole because it's just like tearing things apart. It's just sucking everything dry. So anyway... That happens, and then it, boom, is over. Then we cut to the the very last scene where, like, Ward is climbing out of the cellar, and everything is ash white. Like, everything's covered in this, like, white ash. And he climbs out of the cellar. You see, you know, Nathan's skeleton wearing his wedding ring, covered in ash. And then he looks around. Everything's gone. The ground is decimated. And we, we're panning out overhead. And we see it looks like this giant meteor strike where everything is just dusted. 
And then we cut to his final monologue where he's on top of the dam. And he's like, even though they dammed up this area, I don't know if it's deep enough to cover up the the horror that's down there. And this is real kind of like vague warning, like it could still exist down there. It could still be part of it. Because one thing that happens earlier in the movie is when they talk to Ezra, um, and I don't know if it's during the the recording or if it's uh, when he goes to talk about G-Spot, um, Ezra says, it's too late. It's in the water. And everything has drunk the water, referring to the trees, the plants, the ground, like the groundwater is now tainted. So in his final monologue, when he's like, they flooded it, he still kind of thinks that, like he says, he's like, I still won't drink the water around here. Like he still thinks it's tainted to um, whatever degree it was before, which is like this really creepy, ominous, like outro. And then bam, smash cut, end of movie. Yeah. So that really leads you to wonder like, okay, what exactly is life on earth or at least in this area going to look like, you know, cause a lot of the groundwater, that stuff is, you know, connected in, in all kinds of underground waterways. So how far is the disease, if you will, or the otherworldly parasite or being or entity or color or whatever you want to call it, how far is its reach now through our world? I wonder, I wonder if they're going to talk about that. And, um, Lovecraft country. Like, I wonder if there'll be like a damned up um, lake somewhere in that story, like a reference to this movie slash story. I hope so. That'd be really cool. In the story, right? It's, it's a, I don't think there's a dam involved. It's just like a weird field because they, the story takes place after all this happens and like someone comes into the town and is trying to figure out what happened to this weird field. The blasted heath, that's what they call this field, which I assume meant something back then. I have no idea what the word Heath means. But for a concept that's so like, that could be so lame, like, oh, it's in the water and the water's in everything. Like they did such a good job of actually like making you buy that it was dangerous. When I started like hearing like some of the story elements, I was like, oh, okay. The first time I saw it, I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to be <laughs> by the book, standard, you know, BS sci-fi, you know, and it was like, oh shit. No, they really like, they really convince you that the, the, um, the threat is never gone, especially with the tree thing at the end. You're like, oh man, it just keeps escalating and you like do not see it coming most of the time. Well, I'd highly recommend this one. Um, I think it's a good introduction to Lovecraft stories too for people that may not be um, that well versed into it because I find myself very interested now based on this movie. John, you watched uh, From Beyond recently. Um, that's another one I'd love to go back and check out. So uh, yeah, I'm really interested in his work now. Yeah, I've been watching a bunch of them as much as I can. That's what inspired me to get this book. Uh, the the written parts are interesting, but uh, but like Garrett had said, they can be a struggle to get through. But when they're good, man, they're good. Yeah, if you really want to like jump down that H.P. Lovecraft rabbit hole, um, his stories are, are very cool. And some of them like are kind of like not great in the fact that they're very nebulous and don't really have like a big of a payoff as like some of the other ones. But um, if you ever like have the patience to dig through the like the elder god Cthulhu lineage, holy shit, man. That's like a week long rabbit hole that you will <laughs> you will waste so much time reading about. And like reading about that stuff really puts in this like how even Cthulhu is like on the bottom of the fucking totem pole. 
Like, this shit is, like, massively insane. So, I don't know if it was all Lovecraft that, like, established all that, or if that was, like, you know, collaborations with people since, but, man, it is, um, there's, there's some definite, you can lose yourself in some Lovecraft for a while. It's an interesting universe. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I like, and I think they touch on it a little bit in this movie, but one of the things I like about, like, the Lovecraft stories, like the old god ones, is they're just doing their own shit. Like, they do not care about humanity. They're not out to destroy humanity. They're not out to do anything that we're aware of. They are just doing their own shit, and they don't care about us at all. If they happen to destroy us, doesn't matter, right? They don't care, and it's just so, like, existentially terrifying. Yeah, which, I mean, honestly, that's how it would fucking be, too. Like, Yeah. <laughs> we probably do not rain on anybody's radar except for a very, very, very microscopic percentage. This was a really good movie. I, I recommend this movie. I do have the caveat of, I don't want to call it an art movie because it's not really an art movie, but it has some very abstract concepts. So if you're looking to be handheld, you want point A to point B to point C without having to kind of like, you know, really think about what you're seeing. This is probably not going to be for you, but from start to finish, this is this is just a solid movie. Is magenta the scariest color in the uh, rainbow? Actually, uh, it's not in the rainbow. That's I think that's I think they said that's one of the reasons they went with magenta. Is it's not a naturally occurring uh, color of the spectrum. It is a color that only uh, humans and certain types of uh, animals can perceive by the way the light reflects off of a. Uh, our eyes and stuff like that. It's not. Uh, it's not Roy G. Biv. Uh, Mister Mister Roy. It's in the M there. <laughs> Mister Roy. I don't think that was added, sir. <laughs> what's the What's the extra R stand for? Yeah, really red. Yeah, really red. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's. I think that I read that's why they went with magenta. Is it's not a naturally occurring color um, in the spectrum and stuff like that, which. I thought was a very cool detail to like even like think about that like if we're gonna have a color it has to be a color that does not naturally occur, occur through science like it has to be something that is only a perception of how our bodies work like that's like when you get into that level thought of like some of what they chose to do with this movie that's like next level stuff and I've said that's like way too many times here but I don't know like I just I love when when creators put that level of detail into things and that much thought into a project they're doing because it's so easy to take these things for granted but to to think about something on that level it, sometimes it can hurt a project but oftentimes it can only make you like it can only make you care so much more about something that you just really have to make it as perfect as possible yeah and i guess the only thing that i could really uh, other nitpick that we haven't mentioned already is that whenever the color is first seen on the screen uh, Nick Cage's character says something is like, well, it was like a, 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 it was a color I've never seen before. And I'm like, well, I suppose I'll have to give you credit for that because you can't really produce a color that doesn't exist on film. So, uh, you know, magenta is a very smart option to go with, especially, you know, saying it isn't in the actual spectrum of natural color. No, I didn't think about that. But yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, cause I just kind of wrote that off as him being like, kind of like, well, I don't know, but 
I, yeah, you know what magenta is. Even if you don't know the name, you, you've seen magenta before in your life somewhere. It's literally in your printer. Just pop open and look at the cartridge and you've seen magenta. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, uh, listeners, if you watch this movie, let us know what you think about Color in Space. You can hit us up on our social media. We're at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, we love to hear from you guys. If you have any recommendations of stuff you want us to do, let us know. Uh, until next time, which will be the return of the King of the Monsters. We're going to do Shin Godzilla. So tune in, get that watched, and let us tell you all about, in 100% agreeance with my co-host, why Godzilla is the best kaiju ever made. Cut his mic. Cut his mic now. What is happening? Fake news, sir. Fake news. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time, we'll see you then. Thank you for tuning in. Peace.